This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Tuesday, October 9th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Supreme Court for many years gave us opinions that delighted. Lester, good evening. It's the most important gay rights ruling ever, and it's the culmination of decades of legal battles. Opinions that disappointed. It wasn't totally unexpected, but pro-life groups were thrilled to see today's Supreme Court ruling. This is simply an advertisement for California government-funded abortions. And opinions that delayed. Delayed gratification or delayed a grievance. The U.S. Supreme Court today punted on its biggest decision of the term so far. But for all the years I've been alive, I've not heard the word legitimacy so often wedded to the court as I have this last week. No matter what the rulings have always been in the past, whether they've handed the White House to one person or caused that very house's next occupant to briefly project a rainbow color scheme on the facade, the notion has been, well, these are the rulings. They're not suggestions. They're not something to be tossed away. They're not a rotted outgrowth of a toxic soil. We all agree with this. And by we, I mean you and me and the ACLU and the Judicial Crisis Network and the Federalist Society and Planned Parenthood and the NRA and the American Atheists and Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia. Whenever we heard a ruling, we said, thank God or God damn it, or there is no God, which is the point we've been arguing, which is an odd stance for the Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia. That is where we were. Where we are is to evoke the word legitimacy. Legitimacy is a little like oxygen. It's always there. You don't think about it. But without it, you can choke. So now the word legitimacy is in the air, like oxygen. And the notion of legitimacy is said to be up for grabs. No, I say no. Wrong idea and bad idea. You can be as scandalized and revolted by the confirmation and the handling of the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. And it might be tempting to say, well, you know what? If that weakens or threatens the court's legitimacy, we know who's to blame. It's uh, the conservative Republicans, which is to say all Republicans and their tactics. But it doesn't matter because to argue that the court is legitimate or should be legitimate is a bad thing for this country. If it's bad for the institution, it's bad for America as a whole. And, and I acknowledge this court, this Supreme Court, will definitely deliver some blows to Whatever progressive ideas you hold, or even not so progressive, normal ideas that you don't want, normal rights that you're not looking forward to see chipped away, rights we've lived with for decades and decades, that could happen. But let me make an analogy to the White House. The occupant of the White House is among the worst occupants of the White House ever. Maybe James Buchanan was worse. By the way, he was 
instrumental in the worst Supreme Court decision, the Dred Scott decision. He put some pressure on some of the justices to agree with Roger Taney's horrible decision in Dred Scott. Fine. So we have a president. He is terrible. But that doesn't mean we should say the presidency is illegitimate. We hope that this president occupies it for as small amount of time as possible. And while he does, he might sully it a bit or desecrate it or embarrass it. But the institution will persevere and should persevere. We should look forward to that. And the same must be true of the court. Talk of illegitimacy is not a thrilling component of hashtag resist. It is scary. An illegitimate Supreme Court would be scary. I realize, I concede, the fact that the justices are lifetime appointees, it complicates the entire notion of the institution because we think of these men and women as being the institution because there is no sell-by date on their tenure. Granted, stipulated, but it would be bad for America for them to be perceived as illegitimate. In the United States, I've really come to believe that power seesaws back and forth, and eventually sensible people win out, if only temporarily. Competent people doing their job will save us. I've been saying that all along. I do believe it. Let's keep the institutions legitimate and regarded as legitimate, even those institutions with lifetime appointments and unfavorable actuarial tables compounding the danger. On the show today, I keep talking about legitimacy. That's my interview with Dahlia Lithwick. We do spiel about Nikki Haley, unenthusiastic UN ambassador. But first, here is Dahlia Lithwick with a legitimately important conversation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Is the legitimacy of the Supreme Court such a fragile thing that it could all come crashing down now? To read the popular press, you would think so. USA Today, Brett Kavanaugh joins the Supreme Court challenged with legitimacy. Charlie Pearson, Esquire, the Supreme Court's legitimacy is on the brink of collapse. E.J. Dionne in the Washington Post, the Supreme Court's legitimacy is in tatters. All right, so this is a word. It seems to connote goodness or righteousness, but actually it has a definition, and I wanted to talk about that definition. I also wanted to talk about what we mean when we talk about legitimacy with Dahlia Lithwick, who is the host of the Amicus podcast and covers all matters of court for Slate. Hello, Dahlia. How are you? Hi, Mike. Have you... I've, I've heard you. I mean, you filled my ears with interesting thoughts about the legitimacy of the court and the, uh, the fact that so many of its members have been appointed by presidents who weren't even popular, popularly elected. Good food for thought. But you jump to a place of the legitimacy of the court really hangs in the balance? Maybe I think there are two parts to okay. that question. This is what Stephen Breyer does. Eleven-part questions. I, I think there are two parts. I think there is one 
question that is, come on, is the legitimacy really imperiled, right? Yes. We lived through Bush v. Gore. We right. lived through Citizens United. People say they're going to take the streets. They never do take to the Even streets. Even if they do take to the streets. I mean, what I mean is they're going to come out with a ruling on the gopher frog. And they're going to say maybe Mississippi, you can't build there. Is Mississippi going to go, eh, screw you? Like, no way. Well, no way, except I think that if you look at, you know, the last few months, uh, a lot of lower courts are now saying no way when it comes to whole women's health and abortion. In other words, we have now got federal court judges getting out way over their skis saying like, eh, maybe Roe really is on the line and I'm going to start first. So I think there is some reason to say that the word of the court isn't fixed in amber for all time. But this is before Kavanaugh was even appointed. Even before Kavanaugh, because of the promise of some Kavanaugh-like creature. Mm -hmm. But I just, I think it's important to to bracket questions about, you know, there's this famous story and Justice Breyer tells it like 40 times. Man, I'm really cracking on Justice Breyer. (laughs) He loves to tell this story at every speech about how, you know, when the famous Trail of Tears case happens and, you know, the Supreme Court writes something and Andrew Jackson famously says, you know, John Marshall has written his opinion. Now let him enforce it. right? Right. And that becomes the touchstone for the justices across the boards that we were not always seen as legitimate, that this has been hard fought for 200 years, and that the reason that, by and large, the population says, okay, you know, Brown v. Board uh, is because of something that was hard won and fragile. So I think what I just want to say to your question is I think there's two pieces. One is, is it a public legitimacy crisis for the American public? And the other is, is it in the heads of the justices? Mm -hmm. That's more interesting to me because I think the justices live and die on this notion that, you know, the Federalist, what is it, 58, you know, neither the purse nor the sword, they have nothing but public acceptance right. of their authority. And, and we saw they, Kagan talking about oh it. My Roberts God. talks about it. Sonia yes. Sotomayor, ta- across mm-hmm. the, I mean, Alito talks about it. This is the one thing that is 9-0 right. on this court, right. is that they think it's fragile. And so I just think there are two different conversations. I'm already getting a lot of blowback from people who are frustrated because this morning on the bench there's like joking and, you know, cuteness between Kagan and Sotomayor. Oh, they're getting along. Everyone's getting along. Oh, How man. They? they should just refuse right. to talk right. to him. No, this is a family. They have to protect the family and they will, left and right. So, so that is one thing. I think maybe your larger question is on this massive public outcry about legitimacy. I, I think that that you might be right. That might be overblown. We thought that people would be flaming torches on the streets after Bush v. Gore. They weren't. So here we have the court animating conservatives. If they start coming out with more and more conservative rulings for years to come, demographics say that's going to be the case. Do you think it'll animate liberals like um, it has happened on the other side? That, that's, I, I think that that is the slim read that a lot of folks are holding out hope on the left. They're saying, good, this nothing focuses the mind like reversing Roe v. Wade. You know, yeah. Nothing is going to focus the mind like expanding gun rights. And that is going to happen. I don't think there's much of a doubt that that's going to happen. I think there's this weird false binary about whether it happens because the court writes the words Roe v. Wade is overturned or simply writes the word it's not an undue burden unless, you know, you're painting yourself purple and, you know, on a unicycle. There's a way to do this artfully and it will be done artfully under the, you know, guiding hand of John Roberts. But the court is going to be radically more conservative than we've seen in a century. I would say more conservative than the bulk of the electorate, right? This is an incredible 
incredibly conservative, conservative court. Uh, and then the question is whether it galvanizes the kind of backlash we saw on the right after Roe. And I don't know, because I don't think Democrats exactly remember how to fight about the court. They haven't done it in a long time. Uh, Republicans have had 50 years of practice. And I think that one of the things that was really intriguing to me just watching the hearings was that I still have yet to hear, Mike, a coherent declarative sentence that says, a liberal justice does X. In other words, we all know that conservative justices call balls and strikes. They're minimalists. Yeah. They're strict constructionists. Yeah. They're not living constant. Whatever those words mean, they sure do resonate. And then you hear, you know, the, the, the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, and they're kind of all in this murky stew of, you know, it's good to have a heart and it's nice to care about people and, you know, the little guy. And I'm like, really? So that's, that's a way. That's, that's a way a that theory? if there were a movement behind uh, liberal justices, you'd come up with the talking points. You'd come up with the framing. You'd come up with a couple of known-by-everyone sets of arguments. You might even come up with a Leonard Leo type who you can't get someone appointed until it's vetted by, you know, one powerful liberal liberal group. Although I guess conservatives would say, yeah, it's called the ABA. Well, but it's not the ABA, yeah. and historically the ABA hasn't played that role. Right, and, historically, and they gave a nice recommendation for Kavanaugh. Until they took it away. Sure. But yeah, I think that part well, of— that, You know, don't let facts get in the way. Exactly. Yeah, it's but good I, that they took evidence into account. Yes. There is—if what you're saying is there is no machine mm-hmm. like the Federalist Society heritage machine, that's true. And along with the machine— I don't still know what the message would be. And so I think that Democrats and progressives are going to have to do something with all of this outrage and fury. And by the way, it gets very, very confused now because there's a Me Too valence to this now. And there's a, you know, old white men and paid protesters and what it's getting very confusing. But at heart, I think the sentence of what liberal justices do is not make crap up as they go along, which is how they've been painted for 40 years. And and I still haven't heard, and, and all due respect to Barack Obama, I think it's also not they have empathy. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something that is crisp that needs to be said and voters need to care about it. And it can't just be we're pissed about Roe, we're pissed about Me Too. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, you you raised the Me Too movement. That's one of the reasons why Kavanaugh is seen as illegitimate. However, if that correlated with illegitimacy, wouldn't we have seen, at least in some polling or in some ways, people looking at court to, at the court as illegitimate because Thomas was on it? He's a sexual harasser. The evidence against him is, if anything, stronger. Maybe not the accusation of what the underlying crime was or misdeed was, but the evidence evidence against him seems to be even stronger than uh, the evidence against Kavanaugh. So I, I just haven't heard the word illegitimate. I've heard, I hate this decision. I've heard, I can't believe they decided that. I've heard, well, what do you expect? But you didn't hear talk of illegitimacy with Thomas on the court. A couple of things. I think one thing is a lot of the fact-finding around Thomas happens after okay. he takes the court, right? Yeah, so yeah, then we yeah. have he gets Jane Mayer, and it's Jill a, He's a popular appointee, right. Right. And Jane I mean, Mayer yeah. comes out and, you know, all of this we learn, you know, what? There were all these witnesses and Joe Biden didn't call them. So I think partly, you know, the Democrats were as bad as the, the, the Republicans in some sense in getting uh, – in bungling that. But also a lot of – 
Look, it's not an accident that Jill Abramson comes out this summer with an impeach Clarence Thomas article because now it really the, – the facts have been amassed and it looks like he was not being truthful and that Anita Hill was. But I think there was a big lag time there. It wasn't as though the minute he got on the court, people could say, wait a minute, he was not telling the truth. So I think that's – part of it. But part of it is I think you're you're exactly pointing to the problem, which is institutionally, nobody, when Clarence Thomas takes his seat, none of the Democrats, on the, uh, the liberals on the court say, I'm not talking to him. I'm mm-hmm. not. They immediately swarm him. He, within a year, has a reputation as the most beloved and cherished justice on the court. This is a family that will protect its family. And so I think that you have the behaviors of the court really putting the imprimatur of you know, legitimacy on him and the institution. One thing that underlies your question that I think is really interesting is what does this process do to Clarence Thomas? And we know, and we know this of Alito to a lesser degree, that an ugly, catastrophically ugly uh, confirmation process pushes Thomas dramatically to the right and Alito. So I almost think the thing we haven't reckoned with is all due respect to Brett Kavanaugh, who tells us when he gets sworn in bygones, I think uh, not only has he now overtly said in his hearings this was a dark money Clinton avenging, you know, crazy plot to, to destroy me. I think he legit believes that, by the way. But I think that litigants in front of him have heard him say it and are going to wonder about his legitimacy and his open-mindedness. And that's different, too. So I think not only is he going to become radicalized by this, as I suppose I would if I thought I was wrongly tarred with with a— kind of accusations he thinks he was wrongly tarred with. But I also think that the things that he said— at his hearing, at the second hearing with Dr. Blasey Ford, are the kinds of things that led, my God, 98-year-old John Paul Stevens to say last week, wow, this is so bad for the court. And so I think in some ways it's different because of what he did and also because of the appearance of what it will be like to be an ACLU lawyer trying to argue before him. So what do you think? If they start polling, is do you think to do you think the Supreme Court's legitimate, a legitimate institution? What, what, what would you like? Uh, above what number would you start getting nervous? What the, are they now at 30 yeah. percent, which is like sky high compared sure. to who the, thinks about the Supreme Court? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's you know, yeah. all these polls are so uh, ridiculously inapt because one, you know, what percent of, um, of Americans can even name a single judge? I right. guess they can all name Brett Kavanaugh yeah. now. But, um, you know, so I, I always find that the polling is, is doesn't tell us much. I think that the one if, if I could offer a hint of a predictor. When I look at the polls, I don't look at the approval ratings. It's true. The court's in the 30s, and that's sky high compared to Congress. It's a beloved institution. Um, But (laughs) I've always found the interesting thing about the polling about individual justices is the paradox that is this. The justices that are most out there, so the ones who are doing the TV appearances and who are being polemical in their writing and who are trying to be kind of Twitter figures, are the least liked The paradox for the Supreme Court is that people really don't like justices who are swanning around being justices. They like the idea, even though it's magical thinking and ridiculously aspirational of like brains and vats who turn the lights off at 11 and go to bed. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what they like. And so I think that the harm to the court is that it's been on the front pages for a month 
that people who give the court no thought at all and don't care at all and think that the court is this silent jack-in-the-box that for two weeks in June pops up with decisions and the rest of the year is on screen save, I think those people saw something really ugly. And if I'm right about this, if what people really want is a court that is kind of quasi-religious, mystical, oracular, something different, yeah. boy, did that get kneecapped in the past month. And so I think that what I worry about is probably not different from what John Roberts worries about, which is the masks are off. Everyone sees it for the nakedly political branch that it is. And whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, that's just bad for the court. And I think it's of a piece, if I could be extra depressed, I would say that it is of a piece with this sort of Trumpian delegitimizing institutions, right? So that the court, whether or not you think it did the right thing or the wrong thing in the travel ban, at least had a reasoned, principled decision. As we go forward and the court has to deal with DACA and has to deal with sanctuary cities and then has to someday deal with Mueller and whether the president can pardon himself and whether the president can be susceptible to a lawsuit while in office— all of that stuff, the fact that it's the court's been tarnished now, that was supposed to be the bulwark against kind of creeping chaos. And yeah. what worries me is that not just that the court took a blow, but that the circuit courts take a blow, the district court, the judiciary writ large looks a little less legitimate now than it did in August. And you know who benefits in the end from that? Donald J. Trump. Yeah. Anyone without any adherence to the law. Yep. Yeah. Those who enjoy chaos and lawlessness. Dahlia Lithwick is the amicus host. That is our fine Slate podcast about the courts. She also covers the courts for us. The online magazine, Slate.com. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Nikki Haley has announced her intention to step down as U.S. representative to the United Nations by the end of the year. This set off a round of furious speculation. Why would a smart, talented woman with a reputation largely intact want to leave the Trump administration? I can't understand that. Can you? Better question. Why would you want to join in the first place? Maybe it's because before Haley even got into politics, she was a pretty accomplished businesswoman. She was, she was president of the South Carolina chapter of the National Association of Women in Business. Maybe it's because when she ran South Carolina, she was a pretty popular governor. Maybe it's because she's widely regarded as the one member of the Trump administration who has kept her reputation pretty much intact. Or maybe... It's that she looked at Hope Hicks, whose qualifications are that she's pretty, pretty. She's pretty. She's a pretty person. And she said, wait, how much is Hope Hicks earning from running PR for Fox? Maybe Nikki Haley, like me, was listening to the Politico playback audio edition earlier today. She's expected to make at least seven figures. Oh, Oh, at least seven figures. A 29-year-old with a bachelor's degree from SMU who did some modeling in high school and played some lacrosse. She, she made varsity at Greenwich High School. She'll be getting at least seven figures. I, I suppose this opens the door for her getting $10 million or more dollars. 
So Hope freaking Hicks might be getting paid more than the CEOs of ConAgra or Xerox or General Mills or Target. Yes, I know it seems like I'm angry that a young woman could possibly earn more than a man. Two things. It's not my fault that all the CEOs are men and Hope Hicks should not be earning $10 million. I'm going to say that, hey, I don't begrudge anyone their salary. She worked hard as a mouthpiece for a horrible administration and now will be working hard, presumably, as a mouthpiece for the propaganda arm of that administration. God bless Hope Hicks. I I don't want to just pick on Hope Hicks. Uh, Let's do a comp, not just to an older white man, Jared Dudley. Jared Dudley of the New Jersey Nets. He got 4.2 points per game last year. He earns about $10 million. I do think he should earn more than Hope Hicks. I have no idea how Hope Hicks, whose one talent seems to be that she's Black Widow to Donald Trump's Hulk, you know, can like kind of pet his palm and maybe calm him down. I have no idea what earns her a seven-figure salary. Hicks was presumably one of the, quote, young and beautiful lives and others that have been devastated and destroyed by the phony Russia collusion witch hunt. You remember that tweet? The young and beautiful lives and others. <laughs> yeah, some non-beautiful people were destroyed. Not Sad, sad, not as sad, of course. That tweet went on. <laughs> it was a very funny tweet, wasn't it? Devastated and destroyed by the phony Russia collusion witch hunt. They journeyed down to Washington, D.C. with stars in their eyes and wanting to help our nation, then went back home in tatters. Well, no word if the new Murdoch gig has a detattering budget, but Hope can pay out of pocket, what with a million dollars, possibly $10 million salary. And maybe Nikki looked at this and said, I'd like to be able to do that too. I'd like to earn some private sector money. Sure, this timing also might sidestep a midterm drubbing, but you know, I'd like to be able to afford my own $50,000 curtains or if I'm paying for them, $5,000 curtains. You know, curtains that are four, but possibly five figures. Nikki Haley's next job will presumably be less of a headache than trying to stare down the Iranian ambassador with that huge translation device slapped to the side of his head and convince him that, yes, yes, Mr. Ambassador, this time you're in trouble. Though we do know that all the European countries are testing international banking law to see if the Venmo payment went through. And then, of course, there's the pain in the neck that is Nikki Haley's life when you have to tell your own boss, no, sir, they're laughing with you, with you. And then there's the monthly conference call with Bolton where you have to convince the guy, no, just from an architectural standpoint, we've got to keep all the floors of the building. It's not really, yes, I know it's in New York. It's not really our call. I'm just talking for symmetry and just to use the space. Let's not, let's not do any lopping off of floors. So with that on her plate, And with Hope Hicks, who is 15 years her junior and vastly less qualified than her, getting seven figures, why would a smart, sharp, reputation-intact woman leave the Trump administration? Because she can. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Biennemi and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. They are considering taking a gig at Fox for at least seven figures, but that does include the two figures after the decimal point. T.J. Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcast. She was the lone dissent in the landmark case of X versus Server, arguing the doctrine of cinematic incoherence. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, wrote a soaring concurrence with the majority in Plastic Tag versus Twist Tie, arguing the right to fresh bread does not end at the bread box gate. The gist... 
cobbled together a slim majority in smelted v. dealt it. Emanations from the penumbra indeed. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>